0: I didn't plan to preach on the reading from the book of Acts, but as I was listening to it being read, I thought I'd just say something. Uh, Matthias, this is the the passage where Matthias gets chosen to be an apostle uh, to replace Judas. And um, it's interesting when you read it uh, to be reminded that the apostles cast lots, rolled the dice to select Matthias. So this, um, yesterday I heard uh, the presiding bishop on a video presentation at at Grace Cathedral as part of the day, and she said, you know, uh, when I call your attention to this, I'm not advocating that we make decisions in the church by gambling. (laughs) But it is a reminder that um, we Uh, read something here that in the context of the ancient Near East was an affirmation of the work of the Spirit. And so it's a sign in some ways that the Spirit of God works through what some people would interpret as chance, when in fact the Spirit of God moves the way it does. And really the other readings... Uh, are about somehow the Spirit of God at work. It's important because this is the Sunday after Easter, uh, the seventh Sunday after Easter, and a week from today is Pentecost. It's the capstone of the great 50 days, the celebration of the bestowal of the Holy Spirit upon uh, the whole of the church And so we begin a reflection about the way the Spirit works. So this morning, I'm going to do a little recapitulation about the great 50 days and the fourfold shape of the great 50 days that I talk about all the time, prefacing it it by saying that um, three great theological themes are always presented to us during the great 50 days. God's light, God's life, and God's love. And after I do that, I'm going to talk about the readings, particularly 1 John and the Gospel, where some issues that are raised that will be part of the conversation throughout the Christian year. What constitutes eternal life? How do we understand the term world as it is used by St. John? How do we understand our relationship With God and Jesus as we seek to be faithful? What is our role in this world? And so the readings from 1 John and from John's Gospel uh, provide us with some information about that. The first piece of the great 50 days is the presence of the light of Christ, God's light the illuminative processes of God that operate both in external terms and in internal terms. And what that means is that it is a light that just is like every light. It shows us the way. And so we understand that in theological terms as a light that in the community's interrelationship shines in such a way as to illuminate the way we should proceed, how we understand our faith in life in light of the circumstances that we live in in the present moment, and how is the gospel in every age there to provide us with this illuminative process of God. I mentioned on Easter Day, N.T. Wright's lecture uh, about uh, some biblical topics, and he told the story about a a british schoolmaster in one of the prominent english public schools who had a 2t in his bible class and he was meeting with him in his office and he said to the student what do you know about lot's wife and he said the student said She was a pillar of salt by day and a ball of fire by night. I think if I was his tutor, I don't know whether I would have thought I'd made any progress. But at least he was speaking about the light symbolically that the Paschal candle represents, which is the light in the wilderness, The pillar of light showing the people of Israel the way to the promised land. The rehearsal of salvation history, reading from the Bible with a particular tincture during the great 50 days of Easter that has to do with how we understand God's purposes being present in every age. And that Christian people, and certainly the Savior in his preaching and teaching, reminded the people that he preached and taught to that if we would have consulted our sacred literature, if we would have understood what God was doing within us as the people of the covenant, we would have seen that with me and my announcement, we are announcing God's saving embraces for everyone. And that the history of salvation in the biblical text is about God's abiding faithfulness and presence. But that we learn something else when we read from the Bible and listen. Not just ancient stories. Not just the grand narrative. But as we seek to put the connections together, we come to see that our own personal history is part of the history of salvation. So when you hear me say that God needs each one of us to fulfill his plan for the cosmos, it means that your history is part of this. You count. And so all of the conundrums and the storm and drang of your life and the high points and the low points are part of what it means to think about God's way with you and the presence of the Spirit of God. And finally, the last two pieces are the sacramental pieces. That as Episcopalians, we a sacramental church. So how do we see in sacramental terms in our public worship and common life together the presence of these illuminative and history of salvation things? We see them through our public worship week to week. And through the year, we baptize. We provide the template that we lay over our own spiritual growth, the invitation now and the affirmation on the part of of, of we who are baptized that we intend to follow the Savior and that we are strengthened on this journey and on this way by being fed by the spiritual food and drink that we call the Holy Eucharist. My friend Louis Weil, who was my teacher and mentor... And I've known now for over 40 years, said to me, one I just had lunch with him two weeks ago. And he said to me, you know, it gets my goat when I go to church somewhere and the priest or the Eucharistic minister places the Eucharist in my hands and says, this is the body of Christ. And he said, I want to say, no, this. Is the body of Christ, of which this is the sign. So St. Augustine said, Remember who you are as part of the people of God. This is the Sunday after Ascension, and Ascension always occurs on Thursdays, and in the old high church, low church days, there were uh, Episcopal churches that didn't really uh, do much about the Ascension. And I remember as I was off to seminary, um, and my seminary was, as we used to say, nosebleed high, (laughs) someone came up to me and said, you know, I just got told that a a person called Epiphany Church in San Carlos and said, what time is your Ascension Day service? And the parish administrator said, we don't celebrate Ascension Day in the Episcopal Church. (laughs) When I was young, that's the kind of stuff that, you know, you you get your blood boiling and you decide you really want to somehow get into something over it. Now, what can you do, you know? In any case, why is the Ascension important? Father Thomas Keating says that on Ascension Day, Jesus ascended not into some geographical location, but into the heart of all creation. In particular, he has penetrated to the very depths of our being. Our separate self-sense has melted into his divine person. And now we can act under the direct influence of his spirit. So Jesus is not located now just in space and time. He's located everywhere and in each of you. God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. The processes that are involved in this are the processes of what the uh, Eastern Church refers to as theosis. Or divinization. It's the process that says that as we mature in the spirit. And we begin to understand. You can actually use, by the way, if you want. The terminology of depth psychology. So that when we're born, uh, we begin now to cultivate our, a separate sense, self. And we distinguish our self from other selves. And that's important for our own survival and for our own sense of self. And as we begin to understand, if if we are raised in in a context where we understand uh, the spiritual life, even in the most rudimentary ways, and we begin to move forward and mature in the spirit, we begin to understand that we are not a separate sense self from God we become less unlike God. So what does Father Keating say? I repeat it all the time. We are not God. But our true self is God. The ascension is an affirmation of a mysterious interpenetration of material experience, spiritual reality, and the divine presence. This opens us to the transcendent potential in ourselves to our mind which opens up to unlimited truth and to our will which reaches out for unlimited love. And so those two pieces to the human character, our intellect and our will, are like thinking and feeling. And people who have done some research on the brain in the last 25 or 30 years would tell you what we've discovered is is that we have a liquid nervous system. That thinking and feeling is simultaneous. So it won't do to focus on one or the other exclusively. Both need to be understood because they're happening together. So... We can make the decision to marinate in our feelings or we can think about what we're feeling and do something to make sense out of what that means. And we always have the Spirit of God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us to assist in the process. Over the last... Three or four weeks, you know, the great 50 days are divided up the Sundays after Easter into uh, three or four Sundays where we read in the Gospels about the resurrection appearances. So it's the church's reflection in its liturgy on how the church has understood the meaning and the nature of the resurrection in plural ways. And then the balance. Of the great 50 days are readings about how then must we live? What must we do? What can we hope and expect to come? So now, this week, the readings to some degree have to do with separation anxiety because Jesus is leaving, he's going in the Bible, he's now ascending. To God's space. And then to dwell in our hearts. So we have to remember that God comes now as a comforter. You know, there are some Christian traditions, actually quite recent on one level. um, I'm thinking of the Pentecostal tradition where we think about the coming of the Holy Spirit and the, the way in which the Holy Spirit comes and the feelings that people have when they believe themselves to be possessors of the Holy Spirit. In our tradition, uh, Dr. John McQuarrie, uh, the former Lady Margaret Professor of Divinity at Oxford, used to say, the, the most constructive way to think about the Holy Spirit And the presence of the Holy Spirit in each of us is not as an invasive thing, but as a pervasive thing. So haven't you met people who seem to you to uh, radiate the presence of the Spirit in their lives or in their character? Not as some sort of dramatic and disturbing occurrence, but as a pervasive way in which the generous human impulse seems to always be present. I've spoken to you about this in the past. In the spiritual life, the classic spiritual life, this is called the uncreated light. So when you see a person whose face shines, you see often in them the uncreated light. I've seen this a few times in my life. When I was in seminary, I came back to California to meet with the Commission on the Ministry, and it was at the same time as the Trinity Institute, the Trinity Church Wall Street sponsors annually a series of lectures uh, on certain topics, and this is now a long time ago, and uh, they had some well-known people in the spiritual world there, and one of them was named Brother Roger Schultz, who was the founder of the Taise community in France, and when I was at the lecture at the end of the lecture a friend of mine came up to me and he said "Uh, would you like to meet uh, Brother Roger and I said sure I'd love to meet him and so we went into the back room where he was waiting or just finished his lecture and I came up and met him and he turned around and looked at me and I said this is the uncreated light I'm seeing in his face. A man of no um, presumption, uh, like St. Anthony that I talked about a few weeks ago, a man completely at home with himself. And I thought, you know, this is uh, what we're talking about here. This is not outside anybody's reach. I just think you need to pay attention to the holy longing that is in each human person. So what we read about today is uh, a lot of this Johannine language about God's love and God's presence. But there's some concepts that we might want to know about. How does John think about eternal life? So when you read these passages that are, you know, you and me and I and you and oh no, what in the world, you know. Today in the great high priestly prayer we're reading this stuff again and sometimes it's hard to follow. But first in the epistle, John speaks about eternal life. So here's what the Johannine community, that's the fancy word, if you use that at parties, they'll go, Wow. This is pretty, this is something. The Johannine literature. For John, eternal, and the community that wrote this, these are, th- this is what they meant. They meant that in the earthly Jesus, in the human being Jesus Christ, they saw in his words and in his works. Words and works indistinguishable from the words and works of God. And by extension, this did not constitute for them some tableau that they were watching as he exercised his earthly ministry, but the providing to them of tools that they could use after he ascended. And they knew that because through the eyewitnesses and those who were not eyewitnesses, that as the result of this experience, there had become, what did we read about last week? A bond of friendship. I call you friends. And that this friendship would never dissipate, and in fact, it would survive physical death. And they came to call this relationship eternal life. But more to the point, they realized that this eternal life was not future only. In fact, not mainly. It was eternal life experienced now. Life lived in a new and deeper and fuller way. And they came to realize also that they had a role to play in this in big and small ways to reflect this to the world. How can you love God who you have not seen if you can't love your brother whom you have seen? So the way eternal life gets expressed is learning how to do that Which, as you know, my friends, is far easier to say, but harder to do. But the community of the beloved disciple, is what the Johannine community is called in biblical scholarship, is the community that says because of this, the intensity of this friendship and this unity that we feel with the Savior and the words and works of Jesus, we now can become instruments of eternal life in the world. So what do they mean when they speak about the world? I use the world, I use the Greek word often, as you know, cosmos. And I usually use it in affirmative terms, the world, you know, the, as we see it, the world, the earth, and all of that. But in the Greek text, in, in, in the ancient world, cosmos meant the, the world of chaos, So as you know, there's a, there are people who are far more versed in this than me that says the, the work of the Savior and of God has been always to move on the chaotic and to bring it into some order. So when Jesus in John's Gospel says, they are not in the world, he means they're not in a world of confusion and chaos and difficulty ambiguity, uncertainty. And I have to say that most of us live in that world. And the community of the beloved disciples said we can begin to understand how we move our lives from that to one where there is some order. And at the beginning of John's Gospel, we're told that Jesus is the word. He is the logos, which means plan, word, or organizing principle. And when you understand the organizing principle of God's work in your life, It's possible to understand the difference between being in the world of confusion and difficulty and just plain who knows what, listening to Kim Kardashian for advice about life, or the housewives of Orange County, good night nurse. You know, if you listen to that, I do actually once in a while because you you, you can preach it The fact is that if that's what the wisdom is that we have going and that people are listening to it and think that it has any meaning of any kind, then we've got our work cut out, don't we? (laughs) You know? I mean, they're plankton in the sea. They have absolutely no idea where to go or what to do next. They are being buffeted by events. Right? So you and I need to begin to think about the world that's been promised in the high priestly prayer in this gospel, which is that those who are connected by friendship to the Savior are now not of that world, but they're in the world where we can begin to understand our role and vocation, where we have clarity of thinking, where the ambiguities and uncertainties and conundrums of life can come into surer and clearer focus about who you are and what you're supposed to be doing. And by virtue of that, you can be God's servant in the world. A number of years ago, the great Jesuit magazine in England, The Tablet, wrote uh, an essay about all of this. And they concluded that what the world is that we're talking about here, that Jesus is speaking of, is a Christ-centered vision of human wholeness which is human growth and development towards a model of perfection that is not humanity's own invention. So this week, think about being an instrument of God's world in this world of confusion and discord and difficulty. Think about the way in which you understand what it means to be an ambassador of eternal life, all of the life-giving forces present in the highest and best of our humanity. And always remember in this process that God unconditionally loves, accepts, and forgives you. Amen.